most countries will have mutual recognition agreements with each other for a host of things. And uh, there's no reason why the UK and the EU can't do all of those things. And in fact, it's very much in both of their interests to do that. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the head of public policy here at the IA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question is global Britain dead? In recent weeks, the free trading vision of Britain's future has been taking a hammering. Former Environment Secretary George Eustace has slammed the trade deals with Australia and New Zealand. The new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has also previously raised questions during the summer leadership contest. Meanwhile, it seems like the, the much hoped for US deal is out of reach. And we've seen other deals like the likes of India and CPTPP delay. To discuss this, I think, very important topic, I'm excited to be joined by Shankar Singham, who's the IEA Trade Fellow, an extensive author, a public commentator, and world-leading trade and competition lawyer. Shankar also played a key role in debates about Brexit and Britain's place in the world. So Shankar, just before we get on to some of the interesting debates about uh, trade deals and, and the Australia question, I'm just to get your views on the state of Brexit, that perennial issue that we, we thought uh, we would someday finish talking about, but seems to have taken up again in, in public debate. There seems to be a lot of discussion that uh, Brexit is somehow uh, behind the current economic worries the UK is facing, or at the very least, making things worse. But what do you make of that mm. debate? Well, uh, I mean, you know, what is Brexit? Brexit was a decision by the UK to leave the European Union. That's all it was. Now, what you do with that decision will determine, obviously, your economic future. And I think at the outset, what the UK needed to do was was essentially in two buckets. What, you know, one was you've got to maximise the opportunities that that freedom provides, and you've got to minimise the disruptions that inevitably come from um, uh, a leaving a customs union, which is a which is a major thing to 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 do with regard to your border management. So um, the the question is, you know, has any of that happened, you know, in the last six years? And uh, and so if we look through that sort of sequentially, in terms of maximising opportunities, we have started. Uh, I think I'd give I'd give the UK a sort of seven or eight out of ten, perhaps, on the external trade policy. Um, because they have started and they have actually um, re-envisaged what their trade policy would be. In other words, they've they've done the things you have to do. They've done the rollover of deals with 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 countries and so on. But they've done a lot more. They've they've actually got a vision of um, uh, of what the UK's independent trade policy role will be, including the CPTPP accession, which is really important. And that was you know when that was first suggested. People thought that was completely crazy because, um, you know, the UK is not a Pacific nation, as I was <laughs> I was reminded on frequent occasions. But you know, it is what what people are are I think beginning to realise is that actually CPTPP is the major uh, regional, and actually even more than regional now, um, trade liberalising initiative in the world, uh, and it is challenging you know countries in the WTO to do more. Uh, and without it, that wouldn't be happening. So that's why it's so important. That's why it was kept alive when the US uh, pulled out of it. That's why the Japanese have taken leadership of it. Mm. And um, so I think the UK has done reasonably well on 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 its trade policy agenda. Um, the biggest area of opportunity, though, of course, is regulatory reform. 
and uh, domestic regulatory reform, which is linked some somewhat to the trade agenda because you have to have an open regulatory uh, system in order to do uh, quick and deep trade deals. But regulatory reform is, is something you do, you know, for yourself. I mean, it, it is what's going to grow your own uh, economy. Mm -hmm. And there, I think uh, it's a zero out of 10, because literally because they have done nothing. I mean, there has been nothing uh, on the regulatory reform agenda. And unfortunately, the previous prime minister who did have that as, as I think, her, her primary goal, you know, only lasted a very short time so and, and largely fell because of objections to uh to any kind of uh, change to the status quo by various people who benefit from the status quo which is always what happens with reform um but uh so zero out of ten on regulatory reform uh and then what about the dis minimizing disruption side of things well probably a four out of ten on that um uh there has been some efforts to do border management you know, you do have a lot of commitments to uh, Best Border 2025, um, the single trade window, which is going forward, um, you know, ma management of our ecosystems of trust and so on. So there are some things in that in that particular bucket that are happening. But you really, if you're going to have a good future, you have to have a 10 out of 10 in all of those boxes. So, so what are we? We're sort of seven uh, on the trade side, zero on the regulatory reform side, maybe four on the on the on the management of the of the border side which is not it's just not it's not there so when you say is it dead well let, let's see what happens when you get closer to a 10 out of 10 on each of those buckets and then you can start assessing how you know how successful or not uh it, it, it is it is being um so i think you know i know that people say well you've had six years well i think that's the time you've had is sort of irrelevant what matters is what what have you done with the time uh the 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 thing the project will be judged once you are getting close to 10 out of 10 in each of those different buckets and then we'll see what happens if you're doing I mean, you, all of those things then what happens yeah i mean it's also going to be a long term question what happens with the eu and and whether or not the the uk um by being a you know, sovereign country and making its own laws and its own decisions can can achieve better outcomes as opposed to following the EU bloc and, and what mm. that freedom means. I think that there is this, this current debate, and, and I think it's legitimate and fair and reasonable to suggest that um, in the short run, Brexit is damaging to the UK economy. I don't think there's really any way to avoid that um, if you're going well, to do a clean break with, with yeah, the yeah. EU, that, that you're going to have a disruption in trade. You do see these stories the FT likes to talk about now of, or you see it on Twitter that a local uh, mm, mm. Uh, shop selling Greek food has had to shut yeah. down because of the customs cost of dealing with, um, it, it feels like some of that self-imposed though. The UK self-imposed a, a customs block barriers and, and it, it could be much better on the border with the EU and more and far more liberalizing. Or for example, on oh. mutual rec recognition. Mm. Of, of EU standards. We could keep that going for even longer. We've extended a bit. Yeah. There's no reason that we have to put up barriers to the EU. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of things here. So, so first of all, uh, the uh, for, for reasons that are, you know, were, were, were reasonable at the time, the UK did not ask for very much in the, in the trade agreement with the EU. And therefore, if you look at the EU UK TCA, other than very specific areas around the level playing field stuff, 
uh, it's a very, very thin trade agreement compared with other agreements. For example, compared with the most modern, most liberalizing one, which is CPTPP. Um, there is a lot more in in the um, TPP on liberalization, particularly in services and mutual recognition and so on. Um, uh, now, does that mean it's set in stone? I think people have this vision that whatever was agreed, nothing will ever change. And actually, there's no trade agreement that doesn't develop and grow and new things get you know added to it. Uh, there is a committee under each of these chapters. There's a Customs and Trade Facilitation Committee that you know is is driving for single you know window with both sides which would which would lower those customs costs you talked about considerably um there are mutual recognition most countries will have mutual recognition agreements with each other for a host of things and uh there's no reason why the UK and the EU can't do all of those things and in fact it's very much in both of their interests to do that the problem is that that we're not going to make any progress on the TCA until you know we we resolve the issues in Northern Ireland. So so the Northern Ireland Protocol is sort of the gate through which all of this has to has to go. That has to get resolved first, and then I think the EU will be more willing to um, to cooperate on some of these things that are in its interests anyway to do. So for example, um, you know New Zealand and the EU have a veterinary agreement that is uh, market you know mutual recognition of, of even underlying product regulations. So they have different SPS rules in the area of um, uh, food and so forth, and yet they're able to recognize each other's regulatory systems. Now, that doesn't eliminate all checks. It, it just allows you to be very, very, you know, it, it lowers the intensity of checks considerably, and it doesn't eliminate all paperwork, but, but it does allow some uh, creative things like digitization of export health certificates and so on. Um, to be to be developed, so it smooths that it smooths the trade considerably. That type type of agreement, if the New Zealanders and the EU can agree it, surely the UK and the EU can agree something like that, because the starting position is the same. And while we are, you know, we reserve the right to change our SPS rules, because frankly, the EU is not in compliance with. WTO on some of its SPS rules, and we would certainly at least want to be in compliance with the WTO uh, and more. Um, our, our fundamental goals of SPS health and safety regulations, health regulations, and so on, is is never going to change. I mean, we're always going to have the goal of, you know, protecting the health and and life, you know, of of people and mm. animals and so on. So, so, so. But you can achieve those goals in very, very different ways, and that's where the EU's, you know, reliance on uh, and and heavy use of of the precautionary principle and hazard based approaches to these things is not the way that most countries do things, particularly modern um, uh, countries that are big traders in the world, particularly in agriculture. And we need to be more aligned with 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 them. But you you made a very good point earlier on that I just wanted to pick up, which was. Uh, the, the battle, I mean, there is a battle beyond all of the things we're discussing narrowly with respect to countries for the for the world's operating system. And so the battle is not between the EU's regulatory system and the US's regulatory system and China's regulatory system, as it often is, is, is sort of posited. The battle is actually between your approach to interoperation of your regulatory systems. Do you have a harmonization first approach, which is favored by the EU? You know, in other words, if you want access to my market, 
you you will have to um you will have to sort of mimic or copy my regulatory system, which is, as I say, favoured by the EU. Or do, do you have uh, the approach that's favoured by countries like the US and Australia and New Zealand and the CPTPP countries, which is as long as the end goals are the same, regulatory you know, recognition of those systems, equivalence and adequacy is the way forward. And that's how countries interoperate. And that allows regulatory competition, which is much more likely to get your regulatory system to be uh, on the sort of consumer welfare enhancing, you know, mm. generating the most economic growth, generating the most economic activity, benefiting consumers and, and, and getting all those balances right. Whereas harmonization is much less likely not impossible, but is much less likely to achieve yeah. um, that outcome. And that's that's where the UK as a major G7 nation has sort of emerged. You know, it's, it's sort of emerged on the chessboard uh, out of nothing, really. Um, and it's you know, the question for the UK is, are you going to be a queen on the chessboard or are you going to be a pawn? And yeah. right now we're behaving like we're going to be a pawn. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, uh, thanks to what you're saying there, is also the case against the kind of mooted Swiss-style arrangement with the EU, which, oh, which would re require a lot more uh, effective alignment with the EU's regulatory orbit yeah. and would completely defeat, in my in my yeah. view at least, the, the point of Brexit, which is you, you've got to be able to do that divergence in those third-party deals. But talking of those third-party deals, um, what's gotten the most controversy in recent history was those comments from George Eustace uh, in about the Australian-New Zealand deals. Um, Shrek, I'm, I'm interested, what do you think? Did the UK give away too much for too little in return, as he suggested? Okay, well, just, just picking up on your Swiss Swiss point first. Um, the, um, uh, the, the difficulty is um, uh, people, I think, tend to view things in terms of countries, whereas, whereas as I've always said, you know, agreements between these sorts of countries are, are words on a page. They're, they're not sort of defined by, by these models. Even there's no such thing as the Swiss model. There's a series of, you know, changing agreements, about 80, 90 agreements that the, that the Swiss have with, with the EU. And they voluntarily align through those agreements, as you said. And it's not. I mean, if you if you view it through the lens of the the buckets I sort of put put you know, I, I sort of described at the beginning of this, um, uh, then what do you gain from the Swiss uh, from let's say a voluntary alignment um, of regulation with the EU? Um, you don't gain, as people sometimes think. Suddenly, there's no customs barriers. No, the customs process stays exactly the same. In fact, so if you look at this with regard to Northern Ireland, a Swiss deal would not change the customs process between GB and Northern Ireland at all. Not one iota. Would it lower the number of physical checks that SPS goods would undergo? Yes, it would. But it wouldn't take them away. So right now, they're about 1%. So it, it would be a very little change would get be gained by that decision. So in the, in the gain box, there's virtually nothing. In the in the loss box, as you pointed out, the moment you voluntarily align to European SPS regulation, you're no longer in control of your regulatory system. That means you cannot accede to things like the CPTPP, because obviously you're making commitments about your, regula your regulatory system in the CPTPP and the good regulatory practice chapter and in various other chapters. And you, you don't have authority over that if you're the UK. So if I'm a CPTPP member, I would say, well, hang on a second, you can't accede to this language. You, you don't, you're not 
you don't have authority to accede to this language. So you can't join the CPTPP, nor, and I would suggest that it would actually compromise what we've already agreed with the Australians and the New Zealands and the Japanese. Uh, it would it would mean you couldn't really do much more than we've already done with the Canadians and the Mexicans, and you certainly wouldn't ever be able to do anything with the US. So in the loss bucket, there is a massive amount of loss. And I haven't even said all of the things like gene editing and synthetic biology and all the things we were going to do in terms of improving our SPS regulation. You would you would lose all of that. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, ambassadors from WTO countries have frequently said to me, you know, we, we're still not really sure which side of the table you're going to be on when you emerge as an independent trading nation. Uh, are you going to be a sort of mini Europe or are you going to be actually a genuine liberalizer of trade, force for liberalization? Well, if we were to do this, we would be telling them exactly which side of the table we would be on and we would be another mini EU. And I don't think anyone in the global trading system would like another EU uh, in the global trading system. So in the loss bucket, it's massive. In the gain bucket, it's virtually nothing. So so why would you do it? Yeah. Uh, so in, in terms of... Um, um, the Australia, the Australia, Australia deal, loss, loss and Australia, gain. Australia, what was lost and what was gained. So I, I'd make a threshold point here, which is the way we talk about trade deals in these highly mercantilist terms of, um, and trade negotiators, you know, tend to do this. You know, they refer to tariff reductions as concessions that they give. Just to those lawyers. They're um, very, they're, they're e awful, e awful. Uh, e e e e even though, yeah, absolutely. Even even though. Um, the um, um, even though obviously lowering your tariff is advantageous to your to your consumers, so I, I'd make that that, that sort of threshold uh, comment that um, that um, it's um, we shouldn't think of things in those mercantilist terms anyway, because actually liberalising is good for you in in and of itself it's it's very much you know your regulatory agenda is very similar to to that your domestic regulatory reform agenda this is stuff that you're doing it's not a concession it's uh you can you can view domestic regulation in in sort of protectionist terms as well but you're protecting you know you're protecting powerful incumbents who benefit from the status quo so it's the same kind of logic so the first thing i would say is you know first of all let's get away from this language of um uh mercantilism uh on, on this. So uh, it's not about gains and losses. The second thing I would say is the UK is the only country I know of where the agriculture ministry actually has a seat at the negotiating table on specific issues. Now, in every other country, absolutely, the agriculture ministry is able to weigh in with, um, it's able to weigh in with um, uh, uh, the trade negotiating process, but ultimately it's one person, the trade negotiator, who is at the table because it's the trade negotiator that has the bird's eye view of the whole um, of the whole economy and the concessions. To put it in the mercantilist language again, in some areas may lead to gains in other areas that are actually very important for the country. So it's only the trade negotiator at the table at the moment of the negotiation who can make those snap decisions. Now, the problem the UK has is you've got the agriculture ministry at the table. Well, the agriculture ministry doesn't really care, and rightly so. They don't care about anything other than agriculture. And um, uh, and in the case of the UK, they're also the environment ministry, so they only care about um, that uh, as as well. Uh, they don't care about financial services. They don't care about you know uh, 
exports of products that aren't agricultural. Um, they don't care about any of those things, and nor should they, because that's not their that's not their mandate. Um, but you don't put them at the negotiating table. It's a fundamental flaw of the of the negotiating mechanics that the UK has, and we will continue to get these problems until that is changed and brought into international best practice. Uh, not just international best practice, but everybody's everybody's practice around the world. So I think when George says um, we we gain we we lost too much and gained too little. He's only talking about his own sphere. He can only be talking about his own sphere because the DEFRA doesn't, you know, doesn't have a view on the extent of services liberalisation that you should you should seek to uh, you should seek to have, uh, or data liberalisation, or any of those things that are actually key and major parts of the Australia of the Australia deal. And actually, if you look at all the areas of the Australia and New Zealand deals that DEFRA was in charge of um in the first place there are some i mean i would have some concerns and i think in the tac uh, i i was i'm a commissioner on the trade and agriculture commission have have reviewed those agreements um and i think in our report we we noted that the australia deal um there's an argument it's sps minus so so the the purpose of the uk is to liberalize if you accept the purpose of the uk is to liberalize and go sort of wto plus on on, on a lot of these areas, in other words, more liberalising than the WTO floor, uh, the Australia deal, the SPS chapter, is less than the WTO floor. So it's a negative contribution to liberalisation. Well, that's not the fault of DIT, because DIT wasn't at the table. That was DEFRA. Um, if you look at the environmental provisions, um, they are, uh, I mean, they are the most uh, wide-ranging and deep environmental provisions of any agreement anywhere. And they're backed by full dispute settlement, which other than USMCA is not true of any trade agreement. So how you can say from an environmental standpoint, you've not got everything you wanted strikes me as somewhat bizarre um, because it is, as I say, more more than any, any, anyone so, so else. So what you're saying is even in George Usus's own terms, this is even if what you're concerned about is being protectionist uh, mm. and uh, or at least helping the kind of um, agriculture industry, you know, there's 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 full liberalisation in most things, but not for 15 years. And there's mm. all these other things about the environment that should also uh, be of Jeffrey's interest. Yeah. So he's he's not really and there's an the an, deal yeah. in the right and, way. And there's an animal welfare chapter, which there hasn't been in any other agreement. So DEFRA essentially got everything it wanted, um, uh, pretty much. Um, the only thing that um, that the Australia deal, where it does differ from the EU's style of deals, is um, is in the uh, commitment to tariff-free, quota-free. But as you said, over a 15-year transition period with a special safeguard. Um, I, I I also find yes. it quite extraordinary that the, the extent to which this this just reveals exactly what George Eustace was working for, because we got a lot of the claims from the um, the NTU from from other protectionists that oh no this is actually just about uh, animal rights and and uh, environmental standards. We have really specific concerns about the way Australia treat such and such environmental issue. Uh, he didn't even try to use that fig leaf of an argument. He basically just said, no, we gave, we were too free trading. We, we should have just protected a, a specific industry. I mean, that, to me, that just sounds like blatant rent seeking. It doesn't sound like a, any anyone who has any interest in what is generally good for the British consumer or would be good trade policy. 
Yeah, and clearly on the tack, we we went through all the arguments about Australia's standards. I mean, that's what the tack you know is focused on. All the arguments about Australia's standards, um, all the arguments about um, uh, very specific practices that happen in Australia. And our conclusion was that there's almost nothing um, that um, uh, is is a lower standard than the UK. And in fact, as as you'd expect, I mean, Australia, and New Zealand standards are very high. Um, so so the standards argument is not not an argument in my view. Uh, it is just a question of protecting. Um, uh, local uh, UK farmers, uh, and um, and and I think on that on that score, there are indeed export opportunities for those those farmers in 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 these deals. I mean, if you look at what New Zealand's dairy farmers were able to accomplish um, uh, as a result of liberalisation, um, they um, uh, you know they they they've gone from virtually being an industry on its back to controlling you know producing 3% of the world's milk, but controlling something like 30% of the world's dairy. Uh, and what they've been able to do and what, what British farmers, I think, could do if they put their minds to it is, is a similar exercise of identifying the value-generating elements of the supply chain and focusing on that. And our agriculture is always going to be high standard, which is a much more lucrative market to be in. We don't want to be in the business of selling cheap meat to... Um, uh, to countries around uh, around the world, we're always going to be high stand. So, I, I think they got everything they wanted. But this this idea of tariff free, quota free is incredibly important uh, because there was one idea that was suggested by Defra, which was, uh, 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 frankly, from a trade policy perspective, uh, uh, a really um, dangerous idea, which is this idea of if you can prove that you're above a, a, a UK standard, then the tariff is at one level and uh, other products tariffs at a different level, a higher level, uh, this sort of dual tariff system, um, and uh, which, which George definitely promoted. Um, and the problem is, of course, a dual tariff, like everything else, you know, a price cap always becomes a price floor. Uh, um, uh, it will become, there will be nobody at the, at the lower tariff. It will be, everybody will be at the higher uh, tariff. It, it, it never it never is a dual system. It, it's always the higher tariff system. So this commitment to tariff-free, quota-free is incredibly important. And many of our trading partners have picked this up. Australia, New Zealand, others have said, it is really significant that a major G7 European nation has committed to this, even though you know it's 15 years and it's with these so forth. There's at least a notional commitment that we're going to be tariff-free, quota-free so, over so Schenkel, time. What did you make of the the specific attack on Crawford um, Faulkner, who is the the chief trade negotiator on these deals and and now the interim permanent secretary of the DIT? Was as was noted at the time, quite extraordinary to be attacking by name an official uh, on on the floor of Parliament. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is um, I, I thought it completely outrageous that a civil servant who cannot respond, who George Eustace knows perfectly well cannot respond and cannot defend himself, was attacked in this way by a politician. Uh, the second thing I would say is that Crawford Faulkner knows more about trade policy in his little finger than mostly most people in the UK know in their entire experience. Crawford Faulkner was regarded and is regarded by trade policy practitioners who actually have some experience, and by that I mean people with like 30 years experience of trade negotiation, 
um, uh, as the star of the field. You know, he was chosen to be the chairman of the WTO's Agriculture um, Negotiation Committee because he was seen to be um, so good at, at, at what he did. He is a huge asset for the UK. Frankly, the UK is lucky to have him. And, uh, you know, if I were Crawford and, uh, you know, getting all of this uh, abuse, I would wonder, you know, why am I giving my time to this country? Um, and um, uh, the ingratitude of uh, of people like George Eustace and politicians f to, to have an asset like this in the UK, without whom they wouldn't be able to do any of the trade policy stuff. You know, one of the things that, that Crawford has done is really built some really, really good negotiators in that department, in DIT. Now, that doesn't happen overnight with no experience. You know, it's because negotiators know they can go up the up the corridor and say, look, Crawford, I've got this problem. What do you think? And you're learning from the best in the world. This is a huge opportunity for UK uh, to, to upgrade its, it, it itself. Now, we have to be very clear about why uh, George Eustace is attacking Crawford in this way. Clearly, he feels that if he can remove Crawford Faulkner, then he can remove the UK's liberalizing role in international trade. Well, once you've removed the UK's liberalizing role in international trade, and it effectively has no trade policy, and once you've basically ensured that you've locked down, you know, SPS rules in, in the way that is suggested, then you have no gain. You have no gain from this process. And ultimately, there's only one way that leads, which is back into the EU, but back into the EU on sort of considerably unfavorable terms, I would imagine. So Crawford here, I think, for, for, for people like George Eustace, represents, um, it's not the man, it's, it's, uh, it, he represents a stream of thinking that um, uh, for, for their goals to be achieved, which is a light alignment of regulation to the EU and no real change from the EU's protectionist approach on agriculture, uh, th this this man represents a, a, a colossal threat to that. And if you can remove him, then you can win. And I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, there is a the the final point I'd make about 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 Crawford is you have to have a global strategic a strategic global trade policy it's not just about um a, a narrow economic uh, gain for a particular producer here or a loss to a producer there there is a global strategic approach here your trade policy is part of your foreign policy and it is extremely important that the uk plays this 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 liberalizing role in a world which is increasingly becoming protectionist, which is increasingly increasing its levels of regulatory protection and regulatory barriers. We, we have market distortions in China that are increasing massively. We have market distortions in other countries that are increasing. If we all retreat into this protectionist regulatory shell, um, then what is the what is the what is the danger to the world here? The danger to the world is a is a severe reduction in global welfare, uh, a, a reduction in global wealth. And of course, the people who pay the biggest price for the reduction in global welfare is are, are people in in developing countries. You know, they're, they're the ones who are, you know, it, it's almost like a, a ship that starts to take on water and, and, and starts to be submerged. It's the people in the bottom 
uh, layer of the boat that end up drowned first. And, that, and that's what's going to happen to developing countries if we continue on the path that we're on. And Crawford recognizes this because he's been working in all, with all of these things for, for, for 30 years. And uh, that's why the UK was welcomed so much by the community of trading nations after after Brexit. That's that's why people said, you know, this is great to have a major G7. Uh, and I'll just finally give you an example of a major a chairman of a major pharmaceutical company who said to me, foreign um, company, who said to me, I've paid for the cost of Brexit. I've done all the things I need to do. I've set up these offices all over the EU. Now I want to see the gains of Brexit. Now I want to see you... Um, having medical and pharmaceutical regulation that is pro-competitive and not burdensome, where's that? That's what I want to see now. And that's far more important to me than the sort of relatively minor but annoying cost that I've had to pay for, uh, uh, you know, for your decision to leave. But if I'm not going to see any of that gain, then all I have is to show for this is the, the minor and irritating cost of having to reorganize everything which if there's no gain, it starts to look not so minor and not so, you know, merely irritate, irritating. Well, Shankar, on that note uh, of, of optimism uh, about Brexit and about global Britain, uh, in terms of not that the the, um, the the vision has necessarily been fulfilled, but there is a vision there and there is oh, an yeah. opportunity um, and, and so much more to be done. I think I might get you back in future to have a little bit more chat about India and CPTPP and, and all these, these other opportunities. But for now, thank you so much, Shankar, for joining the IEA podcast. For those who've been enjoying this podcast uh, i do encourage you to subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or on the iea's youtube and if you're enjoying the iea please do uh, visit iea.org.uk and you can support our work and become a patron great thanks very much matthew